You're listening to an audio resource from Vineyard Church of the Rockies in Fort Collins, Colorado. We are joining God's mission, transforming all things, and you're invited. To learn more about us and how you can connect, please visit votr.church. Hey, today we are starting a new series called Together We Are, and we're going to be diving into that in just a moment. Uh, But before we do that, I wanted to give you an update on Convoy of Hope. Convoy of Hope. Uh, My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. And you may have noticed that the guy who's normally standing right here at this moment in our service, Jeff, our lead pastor, he's not here. He's been in Zimbabwe all week long with Convoy of Hope. Yeah, it's been an amazing trip. And uh, he has sent back some photos for us of his trip. So I think those will be happening while I'm talking. But for the past few years, we've been partnering with Zimbabwe to pioneer new ministries there. And so there's a daily feeding program for thousands of kids. And it's really special that that Jeff has been able to meet some of them. And and they eat meals every day that we're helping to provide there. And he's met some of the participants of the Women's Empowerment Program. Um, He has seen the well that we helped dig and the infrastructure that that we've put in for clean water. Um, he's visited a church that we helped to plant, and he'll be back here next Sunday, and I can't wait to hear the stories from his trip. It's going to be amazing. But in the meantime, I want you to know that your generosity, your faithfulness is making a huge, huge kingdom impact. Lives are being changed. So thank you, guys. Thank you. And Jeff's trip landed right in the middle of our annual One Day to Feed the World campaign. And each year we encourage you to give the equivalent of one day's wages to Convoy of Hope. And that simple act of generosity can transform everyday realities of people that are in desperate need. And so in the past two weeks, our church has given, so far, $30,870 which is amazing, amazing. It's going to go directly to Convoy of Hope, and there's still time to participate. So if you're just getting news of this now, or maybe it's, it slipped your mind, or you've been out of town, Convoy, One Day to Feed the World, is going on through the rest of October. So you can give online, or just mark your envelope or check and drop it in any of the offering boxes, just mark it Convoy. And then at the end of October... Our church will send all of that, 100% of the money that comes in towards Convoy will just go directly to them and directly to their efforts around the world. And we really want to encourage you to prayerfully consider participating with us in One Day to Feed the World. So have you ever had a conversation and somewhere along the line you realize that you're not talking about the same thing at all? Like maybe you're using the same words but somehow wires have gotten crossed and it becomes clear that you're not, you're not talking about the same thing. Like, just me? No? Like, husbands? Come on. I'm not alone here. So last December, our church had a special event here distributing coats and Christmas gifts and food and the whole staff was all excited because it was going to be an awesome event and we all came in early to get set up. And Jeff was conspicuously late, like uncharacteristically late. The guy is not late to stuff. And when he finally rolled in, it was very obvious that he was 
not himself at all. And I found out later why. I found out that their dog, Wrigley, had passed away that morning. It was a really sad day for the Faust fam. But when Jeff arrived, he pulled me aside and he whispered to me, and I, I couldn't believe what I thought that I heard him whisper. He, he leaned in and he said, Rick died this morning. And I, I, was, I was like, what? I was stunned. And for those of you who don't know, Rick, is, Rick Olmstead is our amazing founding pastor here at the church and pastored and led our church for 37 years. And I know... Wrigley, Rick. I was having trouble with my ears. I, I couldn't hear. And I really thought that he said Rick. And so I could just feel the shock waves like roll down my spine. And Jeff continued whispering. Like, I don't know when to tell the team. Like, I don't want to put a damper on the festivities. And I was so shocked. I could barely mutter a reply. I don't even know what I said to that. But then it really took a turn, and he, like, leaned in closer, and, and he whispered, I had to deal with the body. <laughs> it was so heavy. <laughs> and I, I was like, is there some sort of secret fraternal lead pastor obligation thing here that I don't know about? Like, what exactly are the extent of your duties that... It, Jeff's face in that moment was like, dude, I know you're a dog person, but you're taking this hard. <laughs> After a few more awkward seconds and the mention of canine crematory services, like I finally pieced it together. Oh, Wrigley, Wrigley died, not Rick. This makes so much more sense. And I was like relieved and nauseous and... All the things. It took me a week to tell Jeff what I thought he had said. And thankfully, Rick Olmstead is alive and well, and the Faust fam have two new puppies, and my emotional scars are fading. So <laughs> everything's turning out okay. Because misunderstandings like this are all too common. Anytime we aim for communication, there's a pretty reasonable chance that we might miss. I think this happens even between God and us. Like we're reading the Bible and everything's going good, having our quiet time. God's talking about one thing and we totally misread it. Anybody? Just me? I'll give you an example. There's a really popular verse in Jeremiah 29 that says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. And this verse makes us feel so good, right? It's amazing. You might even have it on a coffee mug or a bookmark or a sticker. Maybe you wrote it in your nephew's graduation card last spring. And that's fine. Like, I don't want to dissuade you from loving a Bible verse ever. But there's something you should know about that verse. Like it was originally written to the Israelites as they were being carried into captivity. That's, that's very different than, than what we read into it, right? And 
maybe more concerning is that we usually personalize that verse. Like we can just insert our name into it. And I admit, I have read the verse this way. Like, for I know the plans I have for Matt, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper Matt. That's a pretty great way to read that verse. And it's not like it's, it's untrue. God does know the plans that he has for me and for you. But the best reading of, of this particular verse in its context and original language, it, it's really clear that God is speaking to an entire people group, not to an individual. Like he's speaking to the Israelites as a nation. It's more like y'all than you, really. You know, it's a, it's a problem of the English language because we just lack the you plural thing. I think maybe the South has that to contribute and maybe we should just adopt y'all because sometimes it's helpful to say, I know the plans I have for y'all. And then it's really clear what, what the meaning is. Um, it's actually a bigger deal, this particular misunderstanding, than just this one verse because it, it reveals a really common symptom that's underlying a much deeper problem. And the problem is called the heresy of individualism. That's a big theological word, but it's pretty self-evident, the, the heresy of individualism. Our Western culture, especially here in America, like with modernity and then our postmodern world in America, it, it's built on the foundation of individualism, like the emphasis of the individual. We pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we're a self-made man, right? That's the narrative here. This is what Robert Bella calls expressive individualism in his book, Habits of the Heart. It's a really good read if you're interested in digging in more here. But this individualistic mindset is really easy to spot all around us. And it's especially easy when you look at the technology we've developed. Television, cars, smartphones, even washing machines have, have turned something that used to be very communal and mutually cooperative into something that's very personal and individual something that you do alone. And we'd be naive to think it, this hasn't affected our spiritual lives and the way that we approach God. And we might not want to admit it, but the best case scenario here is that we're missing some of the richness of the community of faith, right? We're missing out on some of what Christianity has to offer in community. But worst case scenario, our lives might be bound up in this heresy of individualism. Eugene Peterson, in his book, Christ Plays in 10,000 Places, said this, there can be no maturity in the spiritual life, no obedience in following Jesus, no wholeness in the Christian life apart from immersion and embrace of community. I am not myself by myself. Community, not the highly vaunted individualism of our culture, is the setting in which Christ is at play. And so, today, we're starting this new sermon series called Together We Are. And we're going to spend the next few weeks studying the book of Ephesians, digging in there at some of the aspects of who we are together. 
These are facets of our faith that are not found alone in isolation, but they are only experienced in community. And so today's message is titled, Together We Are the Family of God. The Family of God. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 1 together. We're going to start in verse 3, Ephesians 1. I'm reading a long passage here, so buckle up. It's really dense, but we'll, we'll talk about it. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So, we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan regarding Christ, a plan to fulfill his own good pleasure. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God. Pause and let that sink in. Because we are united with Christ, we've received an inheritance for God. For he chose us in advance and he makes everything work out according to his plan. God's purpose was that we Jews who were the first to trust in Christ would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth. The good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he purchased us to be his own people. He did this so we would bring praise and glory to him. This is the word of the Lord. So there's so much packed in there, right? Paul had some things to say. (laughs) And the translators have added punctuation for us. But believe it or not, originally that was all one big, excited, run-on sentence. Everything I just read, one sentence. And I want to draw our attention to just one thing. Like, it's all really rich and really good. But I want to draw our attention, draw our focus to this one thing today. That we are adopted into the family of God. We're adopted into the family of God. Look back at verse 5 with me. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So point number one, if you're taking notes, we are adopted. We're adopted. Since the beginning... God has been revealing himself to people 
his heart and his character, who he is by how he relates to us. So as, as time went on and, and people interacted with God in new and different ways, he would reveal himself through names. And so throughout the Old Testament, we learn to see God as our provider, our peace, our healer, our righteousness, just to name a few. And then Jesus shows up on the scene. He shows up, the preexistent one, the, the word that was with God and that was God from the beginning. And Jesus comes and he says, do you want to know what God is like? Do you want to know who he is? Do you know what, want to know what to call him? Father. Jesus says that when you pray, you should call out our Father. He knew this was the plan all along. It was revolutionary. Up until that point, the people of God wouldn't even whisper the name of God out loud. They had such reverence and awe. And then Jesus comes and says, now call him Father. Because he was there when the decision was made to adopt us. Ephesians 1 says he, he chose us in advance before the world was even formed. He chose us. And Jesus was there when the decision was made. He came and he said, now call him Father. And did you catch it that we are chosen that this is not an accident, this is not a random act of kindness, that God saw you, saw you, and chose you to be adopted. And I don't understand the great mysteries of God's choosing and how it interacts with our choices, but what is clear in this passage and, and what immediately follows is that our salvation, our adoption, our inheritance, everything that we have in Christ is a gift from God. And it says that it gives him pleasure in giving it to us. It was his choice to lavish those gifts on us. My wife, Terry, and I adopted our two kids. Tatum is 15 and Mac is 10. And we brought both of them home from the hospital when they were born in Tennessee. And guys, we're adoptive parents and nothing more. And I know there are other adoptive parents and families in the room and tuning in online. And I share our story simply to draw attention to the reality of our adoption in Christ and nothing more. But every adoption story is really unique. But there is an aspect of adoption that I think is true most of the time. And that is all of the preparation, all the planning involved. There, there were applications and legal hoops and paperwork. There were social workers and home studies and evaluations. There were fees and fundraisers and attorneys billing time. There were medical screenings that I'd never heard of up until that point in my life. There were shots. That was almost a deal breaker because of how I feel about needles. I was like, <laughs> I'm out, y'all. I thought this was what... Needles, nope. And we had to prep our house. I remember painting Tatum's nursery and, and praying for her. And we'd chosen like a gender neutral color because we didn't know if it was, you know, a boy or a girl. And we didn't know when it was going to happen. But I'm, I'm in there rolling paint and I'm praying for this, this baby that I'm hoping to meet. Dreaming about her, what she'd be like, 
what she'd look like, what she would sound like. Thinking about all the stories that we would tell in that room. All the bedtime stories, all the lullabies that we would sing. All the tears that we would wipe away. As it turns out, tears were not the primary thing being wiped in that room. (laughs) But I wasn't thinking about that at the moment. I was thinking about the wiping tears. I was secretly worried, guys. This is something I didn't talk about at the time. But I was secretly worried that when the time came and Tatum was born, that I wouldn't feel anything. I didn't even know what I was supposed to feel. But I was scared that I wouldn't feel what I was supposed to feel as a first-time father. That I'd be meeting this stranger, somebody else's baby. I was terrified. When she finally arrived, the reality was that Terry and I had chosen to adopt Tatum hundreds and hundreds of times at that time. Each step of the process was a tiny demonstration of love. We didn't even understand it. But it was this act of love for a tiny baby who we hoped was coming. She was chosen countless times in in ways big and small before she was ever born. And in that moment, when a nurse put my baby girl into my arms for the first time, The feelings came for sure, but what I didn't expect at all was that it was the culmination of all of those choices. That this baby was the embodiment of everything that we'd been planning for and preparing for and hoping for. And it came rushing over me in a really visceral love that that I'd never experienced. But it was because of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of ways that we have chosen to get to that moment. I was finally meeting my daughter, my chosen daughter, and nothing she could do could make her more my daughter or less my daughter. Her identity as a Farrand was forever. And guys, this is how our adoption in Christ works. It was a one-time act that was a result of thousands of choices by our Heavenly Father that all point to the fact that we, we are chosen. We are chosen to be daughters and sons. He'd been planning and preparing since way before we were born, way before the foundations of the world. He had been demonstrating His love for us in advance to make us our own. And he didn't wait for us to get all cleaned up and cute and lovable. He did it when we were still enemies. He chose us when we were far off from him. Our adoption is not earned or conditional. It's not fragile. Guys, our adoption in Christ was never about our ability to earn our way into the family of God. And if that's not how we got into the family of God... That's not how we stay in the family of God. This is our identity. It's been given to us by the Father through Jesus that we are daughters and sons of God. 
Another moment that stands out in my mind when Tatum was born was when it came time to actually go home from the hospital. Ironically, after all of that preparation and planning, I was not ready for that moment. I remember triple-checking the little car seat-based thing to make sure it was installed correctly. Like, all of a sudden, this was real, and this mattered, you know. And then I pulled up to the carport, and I clicked Tatum's car seat into the base like four times. She was looking up at me like, really? Yeah, really. Just make sure it's locked. Make sure it's good in there. After 10 years, my little family fit in the front seat, but all of a sudden there was this third person in the back. And that little difference made the gear shift lever feel like 2,000 pounds trying to shift into gear. I was a scared first-time driver, like trembling as I pulled out into traffic. This is all very circle because I'm teaching Tatum to drive right now, so it's very deja vu. <laughs> but guys, I had driven to that building, not a father. And then I drove away from that building, a dad. They're like telling me to take this baby home <laughs> after years of longing and months of waiting and all this seemed a bit sudden. <laughs> How would I know what to do? What, what business did I have being a father? But just as Tatum's identity as my daughter was secure, my identity as dad was set. Like, ready or not, nothing could make me more or less a father than I was in that moment. I could be a good father or a bad one, but I was a father. And realize in that moment, what washed over me was that I was, I was completely a dad, even though I didn't feel like a dad, even though I didn't feel ready, I was completely a dad, but that I would spend the rest of my life learning to be her dad. And the beautiful part is that I wasn't alone in that. I had Terry, my wife. Thank God for Terry, because somehow she knew exactly what to do when I didn't know. She helped me grow in fatherhood every day. And it wasn't just the two of us. We had extended family and neighbors and Tatum's biological family, actually, and our church family. This is a picture of our story, that we are adopted into the family of God. We're adopted into the family of God. In Ephesians 1, we see that God himself isn't individualistic, but is community. The Trinity is all named in this passage. The perichoresis of the divine dance of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And God invites us into that community. That community that he's already established is what we get adopted into. So it's the Trinity plus me, that's already a party. But God didn't in, adopt a bunch of only children. Everything in this passage is plural. Everything. It's all about us, we, our, and even a couple of y'alls in there that got translated as yous. God's plan has always been family. Like at the creation of the world, God created a family. 
And then he shows up to a childless man, Abraham, and he makes a promise that I will bless your family so that your family can bless all families. In Psalm 68, we learn that God sets the lonely into families. And when it was time for the incarnation, Jesus could have come any way he wanted, but he came and was born as a helpless baby into a family. It's always been the plan. And that's the family that God has chosen to adopt us into. And every time there are kids in Sunday school singing Father Abraham, it is a reminder of promises fulfilled. And what is that plan? What is the plan? I'm glad you asked because <laughs> verse 10 just tells it outright. Verse 10 says, this is the plan. Don't you love it when the Bible's just clear? Like, hey, here's the plan, right here. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ. Everything under heaven and on earth. That's a pretty big plan. That's a pretty big plan. That's what we're talking about when we say that we're joining God's mission, transforming all things. We're getting involved in, in the plan. And as Christians, we have this blessed hope, this unshakable hope that one day King Jesus will come back and he'll set everything right. Everything that's broken in this world, everything that hurts, everything that is not as it should be in your life and in mine, Jesus will come back and he'll make it right. He'll make all things new. But the best part about that hope is that it's not far off. It's not just someday. It starts here and now. It's actually started in our midst, in our lives, in the family of God. And yes, there are big cosmic divine activities and part of God's grand plan. But when you bring it down to ground level, where the rubber meets the road, the revolution looks like us living as family. Adopted brothers and sisters joining God's mission, transforming all things. Being held together, not by any one of us, not by our goodness or abilities, not by our uniformity or agreeableness. We are being held together by the love of our Father. Our adoption into the family is like a sacrament. It's like communion or baptism, an outward sign of an inward spiritual reality. We are a sign to the world that God is bringing all things together under Jesus. How else can you explain our adoptive family being together? Like in this room and online, us together. There's no other explanation but God. And here we are, a sign to the world we are the kind of family that the world needs. The world desperately needs to stop striving for approval and love in all the wrong places. To find belonging, the kind of belonging that they were made for, that can only be found in the arms of the Father. That's why when Mother Teresa won the Nobel Prize in 1979, they asked her, Hey, Mother Teresa, what can we do to promote world peace? Anybody know what she said? 
It's a famous quote. She said, go home and love your family. Go home and love your family. And I think she was on to something profound about the way that the kingdom of God works. Her answer reflects Jesus' prayer for us in John 17, that we would be one just as the Father and He were one, bound together in Christ, so that the family would be on display. And what are we displaying? We're displaying God's perfect love. And check it out. God has sealed our adoption as daughters and sons with an inheritance. This is how you really know your family. When there's inheritance. Not just a monetary inheritance. This inheritance is heavenly. It's so much bigger. Verse 11 says, Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. And then jump down to verse 14. The Spirit of God, the Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised, and that he purchased us to be his own people. The Holy Spirit is the deposit on the inheritance that's coming. Like the cloud by day and the fire by night, God's presence in our midst, leading and guiding us and comforting us and correcting us and empowering us and reminding us, lest we should forget or start to doubt, the Holy Spirit reminds us of whose we are. In Romans chapter 8, it says that we received the Spirit when he adopted us into his, as his own children, and that spirit causes us to cry out to him, Abba, Father. It reminds us whose we are. That we are God's children. Yeah, Holy Spirit, come and remind us of that today. Come to us, your family. Lord, come. Would you pray with me?